0: I'm Ollie Neal, and you're listening to the Equip Project podcast. The Equip Project is designed to help young people engage with the Christian faith in a thoughtful and reasonable way. Our goal is to help provide clarity and understanding as we seek to tackle many of the cultural and intellectual challenges to Christianity. Jim, we find ourselves on the verge of 2020. We do indeed. Um, and the podcast has reached its ninth episode now as well, which is very exciting. We're on the brink of uh, of episode 10. And um, this evening, Jim, I imagine you're going to be uh, having a, a big celebration
1: to see in the new year. <laughs> I'm really embarrassed to admit this. <laughs> my approach to New Year's Eve is so wildly antisocial uh, that I'm embarrassed to admit it. I turn off my, my all my electronic devices, um, phone, everything. And I sit by my aga and read a book uh, until all the nonsense is over. <laughs> Jim, I would never have thought that. I can, I can see
0: you. I can see you setting off fireworks in the garden. And I like other people in principle. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. Well, maybe we can get you along to New Year's party uh, in 2021. We'll, we'll see about that. But we usually release our podcasts um, every Wednesday. But we're going to make an exception with this podcast. And we're going to release it on the 31st of December. Do you want to
1: explain why we're making this exception? Well, the most obvious explanation is that the days between Christmas and the New Year are so disorientating that we've forgotten what day of the week it is. Uh, But the clue to the real explanation is in the title of this episode. We're going to talk about hope. Now, that's a little bit of an unusual topic for us to discuss, Ollie, but many people find the turn of the year to be a difficult time.
0: Yeah, every New Year's Eve, there's the, that famous clock, uh, you know, with the countdown on TV and there's everyone cheering. And, you know, the crazy firework display you often see, particularly in, in London and Singapore and Sydney, you see thousands of pounds of fireworks go up and the crowds cheering. But at the same time, it, it's also a moment when many young adults feel lonely and helpless. Why do you think that uh, that happens? Why is there that sense of, of loneliness?
1: I suppose you could begin with the obvious surface issue. Uh, There's this massive anticlimax that occurs after the excitement of Christmas. and In Britain and Ireland, uh, January and February are the really tough winter months. I can remember sitting in a queue of cars, one uh, dark and it was an icy morning in early January. I was heading back into work after the holidays and no one in that queue of traffic was anticipating a day of joy, excitement and achievement.
0: Yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. It is often just like a real anti-climax, isn't it? But there's a deeper reason, isn't there? Because we're told that New Year is a time to take stock of our lives, to reevaluate, to resolve to make big changes. But for many people, there is no prospect of change, um, and the future looks grey and unappealing. So all the happy talk about welcoming in the New Year, well, it can just feel a bit
1: false, can't it?
0: Yes, and, and as
1: a result, this really profound sense of hopelessness can settle into the, into the heart. Um, I was reading some pretty weird statistics about death rates at this time of year. Uh, apparently, there's a team of sociologists who examined nearly 60 million death certificates. Uh, they must have used a computer, obviously. But they calculated that New Year's Day was the deadliest day uh, in the year. And that's not just down to suicides or, or alcohol-related fatalities. Nobody quite knows why so many people die at this time. And then there's the, the topic of divorce. Uh, lawyers call January divorce month, because there's always a spike in divorces around about now. But you don't actually need statistics um, to make the point here. If you talk to any Christian pastor, they'll tell you that hopelessness and despair are a huge problem at the turn of the year.
0: So maybe the best way into this topic is to think about the negative side for a moment. And, and why is it that people feel so hopeless?
1: Let's think about that for a moment, Jim. Okay, well, I can think of three reasons. If I have false hopes, then they will always fail. Uh, that's the first reason. Secondly, genuine hope isn't a natural feature of the human heart uh, in a fallen world. Genuine hope has to be built into the heart. And then the final reason is that even people who do have genuine hope can be blinded to it for a season. So anyway, those are my suggestions for why people can feel hopeless. When false hopes fail, when genuine hope hasn't been built, and when people come become blind to their hope.
0: Okay, so let's walk through those suggestions one at a time. You said first that people can have false hopes, which then fail. That's, that's a really interesting idea. Could you unpack that a bit for us?
1: In his Gospel, uh, Luke records uh, a conversation which the risen Christ has with two very downhearted disciples. Um, they were walking along the road to a little village called Emmaus, and when we meet them, they're utterly downhearted and defeated, completely hopeless. And the context is, of course, that Jesus has just been crucified, and these two disciples don't yet know about the resurrection, so for them, Jesus is dead. And they've turned their backs on the capital city, and they're trudging away like members of a defeated army. And so when Christ draws alongside them, they just think he's a stranger who asks them to explain their state of mind. And here's what they say. They say, Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, one of the saddest things any pastor can hear is the phrase contained in that quotation. We had hoped. It's heartrending to hear people talk about hope in the past tense. Life hasn't gone the way they planned. The bright optimism of their youth is replaced by a quiet yearning for what might have been. So those two disciples on the road to Mass had a false hope. They were hoping for this simple story, the simple happy story, where Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he's welcomed as king, he overthrows the Romans, and he establishes a true worshipping community. So Christ has to explain the more complicated, the darker story of life's trajectory. He explains why the Christ had to suffer and die. And once they got that understanding, their hearts burned within them. False hope had been replaced by genuine hope.
0: Would you say that their false hope was an overly simple view of life then, or was it one that ignored the reality of suffering?
1: I think so. Many young adults confuse hope with what we might call youthful optimism. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember the moment when Tony Blair was elected as prime minister in 1997. <laughs> Those are the days when Labour actually formed governments. My uh, my wife wasn't born in <laughs> 1997. <laughs> Well, that's that's helped my (laughs) self-esteem. Anyway, the theme music chosen for his walk up Downing Street uh, uh, was a pop song. It was performed, actually, by a Northern Irish group called D. Ream, I think they were called. And the song was called, Things Can Only Get Better. Well, that sentiment is a false hope. Often in life, things get worse, not better. Uh, I'm not sure D. Ream would have got a hit with a song called, Things Might Quite Possibly Get a Lot Worse. (laughs) But if my hope is just a flimsy bit of positive thinking, or a naive optimism, then of course it's going to get crushed by the weight of real life.
0: You suggested a second reason why people can feel hopeless. I think you said that genuine hope isn't a natural feature of the human heart. That seems like a difficult thing to accept.
1: Well, in Ephesians 2, Paul is describing the natural human condition uh, in a fallen world. And he says that we are naturally without hope or God in this world. Now, I know that sounds maybe a little bit harsh, but in fact it's just simple logic. Hope, if it is genuine, must rest on rational grounds. If my sense of hope is nothing but naive optimism, then it is false. There has to be a reason why I should feel hopeful. So the tough question here is, do I have rational grounds for having hope? Now imagine for a moment that I was an atheist. So, according to my worldview then, I'm merely the byproduct of an entirely random process so my life can have no objective purpose, and that life is entirely at the mercy of dumb, impersonal forces. So I could get lucky and escape cancer, or I could get unlucky. There's no rhyme nor reason to the whole thing at all. And in the end, the very best I can hope for is oblivion. So my best option is to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die. Now, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to any atheists listening to us now, and forgive me uh, if I came across in that way. My point is, If atheism is true, then I have no rational grounds for genuine hope. On the other hand, when I become a Christian, God starts a process within my personality that slowly, over years, maybe decades, builds genuine hope inside my heart. And we're going to talk about that process in a few minutes. But my point for now is that it isn't there naturally in the sinful heart.
0: The final suggestion you made about hopelessness is that some people who have a genuine hope can be blinded to it for a season. Could you explain
1: how that happens? I have two very distinct scenarios in mind here, and it is vital that we don't confuse them. The first scenario involves a Christian who suffers from depression. They may have predispositions lurking in their personalities, or a chemical imbalance in the brain. And so for periods of time it can feel like they're oppressed by this dark cloud that destroys any feeling of hope, either hope for themselves or hope for the future in general. Depression is a really complicated subject, isn't it,
0: Jim? And we're planning to dedicate a full episode to the topic in 2020. So let's move on to the second scenario you mentioned. So in a small number
1: of cases, Christians can willfully blind themselves to their own hope. I was once contacted by a Christian who had behaved badly. And they excused their behavior by saying that they were trapped in a prison of hopelessness and anger. But of course, that prison was their own construction. Sometimes I can be trapped in a hopeless prison because I choose to live within the confines of my own petulant narcissism. So for people like that, there is only one escape route, and that is the thing called repentance. And repentance is a psychologically healthy thing to do, even on New Year's Eve. You're very careful
0: to distinguish between those two scenarios, Jim, because some people who suffer from depression can feel guilty about their condition
1: and feel like it is a sin almost. That's right. So it's really, it's vital that we make it clear that depression is a form of suffering that people experience through no fault of their own. That is a a completely different situation from the willful sin I was calling out uh, in the second scenario.
0: I want to get on to the main point of this episode, which is how we can build genuine hope into our hearts. But I guess we should really take a step back for a moment and define what we mean by genuine hope. How would you go about describing that, Jim?
1: I was reading an article written by David Gooding last night about hope. And he defined genuine hope as a kind of certainty. This is what he says. This kind of certainty is based in the very logic of the love of God. It argues that if God loved us while we were still his enemies, and Christ died for us while we were still his enemies, if then we make our peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, we may be utterly certain and unshakably confident, confident in the logic of the consistency of the love of God. Having pardoned us for Christ's sake when we were sinners, we can be equally confident that he will not leave us until he has brought us to humanity's true destiny of glory. I mean, I love that quote. So the Christian
0: hope is a sense of certainty in the believer's heart, a certainty that stands on the
1: logic of God's revealed love. Exactly. I said earlier that genuine hope has to stand on rational grounds. There have to be compelling reasons why I can feel hopeful. and It seems to me that only Christianity gives us that rational ground on which to stand. God loved me while I was still his enemy, but now I enjoy peace with God, so it would be simply illogical for me to feel uncertain about his loving plan for my complete salvation. The real
0: meat of this episode, I feel, is contained in the phrase you used earlier when you said that genuine hope is built over time into the Christian heart. How does that process work?
1: Well, the early verses of Romans chapter 5 describe the slow, gradual process by which hope gets built into the believer's heart. Paul says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope.
0: I can see the process he's talking about in those verses. It starts with suffering, and then suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character produces hope but that all seems quite counterintuitive because how can
1: suffering produce hope? Well, let me start with a personal testimony. I have much more hope in my heart now, after my wife's death, than I had before that suffering began. Now, you're right, Ollie. That does seem completely counterintuitive. Suffering is a bit like a crucible that can change us at the deepest level. Old values get swept away, and new ones become built into us. We are forced to examine the reality of our beliefs, and that process reveals the genuineness of our faith, not to God, but to us. We suddenly are gripped by the truthfulness, the sheer reality of the Christian story. And the deeper that conviction sinks into us, the more understanding we get about life now and in eternity. So all those slightly hazy, speculative ideas about the unseen kingdom and life after death Suddenly, we find them to be substantial and tangible. So what is going on during suffering is that our worldview gets remade, not just in our minds, but at the level of our character. So we start to view life with a a different set of glasses on, if you like, and suddenly all of it, even the messiness and the pain, starts to make a bit more sense. We can navigate it because we have developed understanding, and it is that understanding, says Paul, which produces hope.
0: When you talk like that, Jim, um, it it sounds a little bit like the lyrics of, of that old hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That was the final hymn sung at your wife's funeral, wasn't it?
1: It was. The hymn was written by a man called Horatio Spafford. Uh, Just before Christmas, and way back in 1871, his wife Anna and his four daughters were on a ship travelling from the United States to Europe. There was a terrible accident and Anna and her four daughters were flung into the cold waters of the Atlantic. She clung on to her daughters as long as she could, but one by one they slipped from her despairing hands onto the waves. Anna lay unconscious on a plank of wood until she was picked up by a rescue ship When she landed in Europe, she telegrammed her husband Horatio in complete despair with the words, Saved Alone.
0: That must have been an unspeakable moment of heartache and even despair for them both.
1: Yes. Horatio then travelled to meet his wife on the next ship from the United States to Europe. And at one point on that trip, the ship's captain showed him the spot where his children had drowned. And standing there, looking out at the place where three miles below the surface, the bodies of his children lay. Spafford refused to look down. He looked up, and he penned the words of that hymn, a hymn that has brought hope into despairing hearts ever since. It is well with my soul. You see, that is the genuine hope of the Christian believer, forged in the crucible of suffering, producing the understanding on which an inner certainty can rest.
0: Thank you Jim, those are some really helpful thoughts and uh, as we stand uh, on the brink of 2020 we really hope and pray for each of you listening it's a year in which you experience the genuine hope that only Jesus can bring. A very happy new year to you Jim uh, and to everyone listening. If you would like to suggest a topic or question we can talk about together in future episodes please do email us at theequipproject@gmail.com at gmail.com or reach out to us via Instagram. say, it is well, it is well with my soul.